Hello, 5 by listeners, and happy Thanksgiving, or Gamesgiving, depending on what part of the U.S. you're from. I'm Mason Weaver, and it's a holiday week here in the States, so many of our listeners and contributors will have houses full of family. Some people you adore, and some people you love but can't stand to be around, and some people that you just can't stand. I've picked five of my favorite games from past episodes to help you have a pleasant and emotionally healthy holiday. If you find yourself tasked with entertaining the kids and keeping them out of the kitchen, Mike's going to tell you about Sunday Split, a fun and light card game that I love but am incredibly bad at. After dinner, but before Pycoma drags everyone napward, you and your adult cousins might enjoy playing a round of Splendor with Stephanie. Once the wine bottles are empty and your dad is mixing up old fashions, you want to play Las Vegas with Ruth, rolling dice and placing bets simple enough to teach to the slightly tipsy ants, which just might get you out of playing Farkle or Bunko if you're lucky. If you find you need some quiet time away from the constant den, you can slip off into a guest bedroom and deal yourself a few hands of Oniram with Sarah. And of course, if your family pushes you completely past your breaking point, you and Lindsay can play The Bloody Inn, a game about killing and burying house guests. I hope everyone has a happy holiday, and we'll be back in two weeks with a regular episode of everyone's favorite rapid-fire board game podcast. I'm Mason Weaver for The Five By. Growing up, I Split You Choose was always very serious business, as it was often the only way my mother would let us get at least part of that last cookie, cake piece, pie, or whatever treat she was forcing me to share with my two unworthy brothers. This was a serious battle of wits to see which brother could outsmart the others and get the most without anyone else realizing it. And while I'd like to think I was pretty good at it as a kid, I was probably just not smart enough to realize how many times my older brother had me fooled. So, with all that splitting and choosing experience, when I learned that there was a whole genre of games dedicated to the concept of I split, you choose, I passed. I mean... Why would you want to do this when you can't actually eat the spoils of the match? Okay, joking aside, I did keep an eye on the genre while waiting for the right theme, which finally arrived in Sunday Split. Food is such the perfect topic for these games, and when I heard this one was from fellow NC State alum Nate Bivens and published by powerhouse Foxtrot and Renegade Games, well, it was time to jump in, ice cream scoop first. In Sunday Split, two to five players are trying to make the perfect ice cream sundae from the cards on offer. Each round, the active player takes a certain number of cards and splits them into pile numbers equal to the number of players with most cards face up, but some secret cards face down that only the dealer knows about. Will those cards be yucky vegetables to ruin your sundae with negative points, or is the dealer trying to bluff their opponents to avoid that pile because the person who splits the piles is always the last one to choose? As the game progresses, it is easy to see what cards a player needs most, allowing the dealer to set up some really tempting traps. All I need is one more sprinkles card to pair up with this whipped cream to score 5 points, but if that face down card is a vegetable, then suddenly it's possibly only a 2 point swing my way. Maybe I should just take the banana pile instead because a second place tie in bananas nets me 5 points as well. There are some games like Sushi Go that are based on information you don't know, what cards are going to be passed to you, and are therefore just probabilistic. In Sunday Split, it's a mixture of possible available cards, and knowing that certain cards are likely and intentionally being hidden from you. Which makes this a more mental game of bluffing and calling bluffs on top of collecting sets of cards for points. Even more so at two-player, where it's really a direct battle of wits between yourself and your opponent. At two-player, your odds of getting a vegetable card also go up from 1 in 7 cards to 1 in 6 cards. So, odds are, at least one of those two face-down cards is a vegetable. 
But as the odds of potentially bad cards in your Sunday increase while the player count decreases, this is more than made up for by an increasing number of cards in your tableau at the end of the game. So, I didn't personally feel that a two-player game felt any meaner than a four-player game. I unfortunately didn't have the opportunity to play five-player, as I couldn't get either of the dogs to do anything more than just drool on the cards. Okay, I kind of jumped ahead a bit talking bananas and sprinkles, because while I think food themes are a built-in perfect theme for I Split You Choose games, and yes, I did chuckle at the implied banana split joke, the theme is just the scoring mechanism. So let's go over it. The cards you're collecting are three flavors of ice cream, chocolate, strawberry, and vanilla, and yes, that's in order from worst to best flavors, just so you know. For each set of all three you collect, that's three points. Each ice cream scoop is also individually worth one to two points. Cherries are multipliers for whichever flavor of ice cream you have the most of at the end of the game. Bananas are worth 10 points to the player with the most, and 5 for second most. Whipped cream and sprinkles net you 5 points per completed set. Then there's the previously mentioned vegetable cards, which are worth negative points. Think of it like a very pared-down Sushi Go score sheet, and in my mind Sushi Go is an excellent comparison. Both scratch a similar itch for me, just in different ways. Complexity-wise, Sunday Split is a simpler game. There's just fewer cards that score in different ways to figure out. My six-year-old son is able to apply a logical progression to building his tableau in Sunday Split, unlike Sushi Go. But Sunday Split also requires more thought during gameplay to read what everyone needs, figure out which of those cards best help you, and setting up those piles. And if you aren't setting the piles this round, to determine if that pile with the face-down card is really a trap built just for you. Playing with my 6-year-old is fun, but playing with my 11-year-old and my wife, who can better set up bluffs and double bluffs, is an even more satisfying game. My one, and only one, niggle would be that there is no need for a scoring pad for this game. Scoring is simple enough that it should be doable in one's head. But seeing the pads, my kids instantly grab them and start scoring, and I feel bad for the wasted paper. Maybe it's time to get a laminator and some dry erase markers. But that's it. Yet another hit from Foxtrot Games, who have yet to do wrong by me, and Renegade, who are frankly pretty high up there as well. So, if you wish to discuss Sunday Split further, or to send me your favorite homemade ice cream recipe, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. As I grow older, I'm getting less and less worried about the new, and I'm realizing that there's a reason that popular things are popular. That Taylor Swift kid has some catchy tunes. And I totally believe you when you say those Fast and Furious movies are really fun. I get it. But I wrestled a bit when deciding on why I wanted to review Splendor. I mean, does this game really need someone else to talk about it? Why not start this review with, Hey guys, so have you heard about this game Ticket to Ride? But the more I wavered, the more I realized why I wanted to review this game. See, sometimes something is so simple and so good, and we all like it, but then it gets taken for granted. Well, I'm coming forth to say I will never take Splendor for granted. Released in 2014, designed by Marc Andre and published by Space Cowboys, Splendor is a simple economic engine building game. For those who haven't played it, Here's how the game works. You are a wealthy jewel merchant during the Renaissance, and you leverage your resources to create the best gemstone business. You grow your gem empire by buying mines, earning you more gems, which you can spend to have more mines. 
and maybe along the way you'll impress a noble or two, earning you even more points to help you to your goal. On your turn, you can choose to collect gems. You could buy and build a card, or lastly, you can choose to reserve a card. If you collect gems, you take either three different colors of chips or two of the same color, your choice. If you choose to buy and build a card, you pay its price with your stash of gems and place it in front of you. If you've chosen to reserve a card, simply take it and place it in front of you face down. Sure, you kind of haven't done much on that turn, but you do get a wild color gem to use for a later build if there are still some available. Plus, it's a nice way to really stick it to your opponent by blocking their ability to purchase a card that could easily work in their favor. As you buy and build cards, you get to use their intrinsic gem bonus on later card builds. Some cards will also give you victory points, moving you ever closer to the 15 points needed to win the game. Each game, three cards representing some influential nobles are made available. They have some very specific and often hard-to-reach requirements, but if you manage to meet their objectives, some serious victory points are headed your way. That's the long and short of it. When I described it as simple, I wasn't kidding. But that's part of the charm. First, I can open the box and be playing in two minutes, five minutes if I need to teach it to someone. It's one of the few games that I can play with an older child and not feel like I'm playing a kid's game. It comes in a standard game box, but I can easily throw everything in a Ziploc bag and take it with me. And while I don't mind a bit of luck in my games, this game is 100% luck-free. There's some good replayability in Splendor, since the layout of the available cards is always random. Sure, it's weak on theme. The artwork is nice, but it feels a bit samey. But that's not why I like this game. And that's weird for me to say, since longtime listeners will know how much I love art and a strong theme. That should speak to how well-designed the gameplay is. I love this game in spite of the lack of my usual trappings. Splendor plays two to four players, and it plays well at all counts, although I do like it best at two or three, especially when I have someone at the table who tends to suffer from a touch of AP. I have yet to play this with the expansion released in 2017, but I'm eager to add a new element to an already great game like this. Splendor retails for about $40, which is honestly a bit more than I'd expect to pay for a game of this weight. But with how easy it is to play with new people and how frequently we get it to the table, it's been totally worth it. So if Splendor has been sitting on your shelf for a while, give it some love. If you've never played it, ask one of your board game buddies to play. I'm sure someone has a copy. Sometimes the mainstays are worth a second look. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone-Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and today I wanted to talk about what just might be the perfect game for taking to family events. Designed by Rudger Dorn, Las Vegas was published in 2012 by Aaliyah, and provides exciting dice-chucking area-majority fun for 2-5 to five players in just 30 minutes or so, which leaves you plenty of time for a second or third game after dinner. Las Vegas is a game that's easy to teach but can be enjoyed by gamers of all levels of experience and interest. 
Six casino cards are laid out in order to set up the game, each of which corresponds to one face of a six-sided die. Players then shuffle up the money cards and deal them out to each casino until they each have a minimum of $50,000 available. However, since the card denominations go up to $90,000, it's not inconceivable that an individual casino might end up a lot more desirable because it's offering a lot more money. Once all the money's been dealt out, players start trying to claim a share of the cash that's on the table. To do so, they get a set of eight dice in their color, and on their turn roll all of the dice they haven't yet placed. They then choose a number that they rolled, and place all dice showing that result in the matching casino, staking a claim. Play continues around the table until everyone has placed all of their dice, and then the money's distributed. Players go casino by casino, and whoever has the largest group of dice on that particular casino gets the highest valued card that's present there. If there's more than one card, the person with the second highest group will get the next highest card, and so on. But things get a little more interesting than that. You see, any tied sets of dice cancel each other out, and are therefore not considered when deciding who has the largest group and therefore who gets the payout. So for example, if I had three dice, Kit had three dice, and Jason had just one die on a particular casino, then only Jason would get any money from it. After all the winnings have been distributed, players reset for another round, and then after four rounds have been played, they'll count up their overall winnings to see who had the most successful night at the tables. The choices in Las Vegas are easy to comprehend, but that doesn't make the decision of what to do with your freshly rolled dice an easy one. Every time I teach or play the game, players are left groaning over the so-called terrible choice they're facing, as they contemplate where to stake a claim and what they might be willing to give up. Add in the conflicting desires to play a ton of dice and lock something up, with the desire to save dice for later in the round, and you can see why my family Christmas involved a decent amount of relatively good-natured cursing this year. This is a game full of stand-up moments, player interaction, and blocking. And so far, even when someone's having a fairly lousy round, I've never felt they weren't at least enjoying the spectacle. It's also very easy for people to team up and play a color together, which lets you add extra players to the mix, or even include younger kids, and we've had a lot of success with my nephews, making it, as I said earlier, the perfect game for family events. There's also a lower player account variant in the rules that my husband and I use when playing the game two-player. In two-player Las Vegas, you split the dice of another color between the two players, and they'll roll this neutral color in addition to their own. When a player chooses which number they want to place, they put all dice with that result on the casino, regardless of whether it's a neutral color or their own colored die. When the payout occurs, the neutral color simply acts as if a third player was present, and any winnings that player would have gotten are just simply discarded. But it stops the two-player game from being too open, and leads to some pretty hilarious moments when you somehow manage to roll the dice in such a way that you've just cancelled out all your own winnings by rolling the wrong thing on your neutral dice. So if any of this sounds interesting to you, I have to let you know there's various editions available out there, which all play the same. My own copy is the English language Las Vegas, but you can also find the German Vegas, which uses art of actual Vegas casinos on the tiles instead of the easily recognizable parody art that are found in my copy. The newest edition, and possibly the easiest to find if you're in the States, is actually a Target exclusive. This one's simply named Vegas Dice Game and comes in a die-shaped box, making it fairly easy to spot. In this version, the casino art has been removed entirely, but it all plays exactly the same, so I recommend just grabbing whichever one you're able to get your hands on. That is, unless you have a really burning desire to gamble at the Sphinx. 
There's also a Boulevard expansion, which is unfortunately not available in the United States. I'd love to get my hands on this as it offers various modules to shake things up just a little without making the game unrecognizable, but I simply haven't got around to importing one yet, so I'm not going to go into details of exactly what's involved. Las Vegas offers a quick-playing, fast-dice game that retains enough strategy to be interesting. Each game has enough luck involved to result in a pretty tense but fun experience, and there's very little downtime as every player's role might just affect your shot at that prize you've been eyeing. It's an absolute staple of my collection, and one I know I can play with just about anyone. So until next time, when I'm not rolling nothing but ones despite the juicy cash available on 5, you'll be able to find me at sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. In the past year or so, I've developed a real appreciation for solo board gaming. I love board games, and I love being alone, so solitaire board games is a natural. Between dedicated solo games and multiplayer games with solid one-player rules, there's a surprising variety of solo board games out there, and Onirim is a classic of the genre. Designed by Shadi Torby and originally published in 2010, Onirim's second edition was released in 2014 by Z-Man Games. The box says one to two players, but in my opinion, it's a one-player game that also has two-player rules. Onirim shines as solitaire, and that's how I play it. Onirim has a theme about a labyrinth and nightmares and doors and keys and moons, but really it's an abstract game. It has a theme the way a standard deck of playing cards has a theme. You use the symbols to identify cards, but the meaning of the symbols does not matter at all to the gameplay. They could be pictures of animals, or different kinds of cars, or superheroes, or anything at all. So, dreams it is. Onirim is part of the Oniverse, a series of games by Torby that are all primarily solitaire. Besides Onirim, the Oniverse also includes Urbion, Sylveon, Castellion, and Nautilon. They each have something to recommend them, but Onirim is the first, and the one I turn back to most often. To play Onirim, you draw cards from a deck, trying to collect eight cards that look like colored doors. You can claim a door either by drawing a door and then playing a card of the same color from your hand that has a key symbol. Or, if you play a run of three cards in a row of the same color, you can go through the draw deck and pull out a door of that color. Playing runs of cards is complicated by the rule that you can never play two cards in a row with the same symbol on them. There are only three symbols on the cards, moon, suns, and keys, so this restriction often comes into play. And once a run has been broken by another color, you have to start over. So far this sounds pretty easy, and it would be if not for the ten nightmare cards in the deck. When you draw a nightmare, you have to resolve it by discarding cards or by putting back a door you'd already collected. You lose the game by running out of cards before claiming all the doors, so every discard feels painful, and giving up a door doubly so. While the rules are simple and straightforward, the only thing about this game that isn't so simple is how do you pronounce it? I've heard many different pronunciations, Onirim, 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 etc. I used to say Onirim, but I recently learned that the name derives from the word Oniric, meaning dreamlike or related to dreams. Knowing that, I think the pronunciation Onirim makes the most sense, but I won't judge anyone who pronounces it differently. A game of Onirim is 10 to 15 minutes of relaxing, calm enjoyment. And when you've played enough that it doesn't present much of a challenge anymore, the second edition comes with seven expansions right in the box. Each expansion adds a mechanism that makes the game a little easier, and another mechanism that makes it a little harder. You can add the expansions to the base game separately, or in any combination. I've found experimenting with the expansions as just enough variety to keep Onirim from feeling stale, 
even after countless plays. The second edition also includes a beautiful wooden meeple called Little Incubus, shaped like one of the shadow figures on the Nightmare cards. There are a couple of optional rules that use Little Incubus to make the game a little easier, but I never use it like that. I just take it out of the box and set it in front of me like a start player marker. I know a solitaire game doesn't need a start player marker, but what can I say? Little Incubus is adorable. My only real complaint about Onirim is the shuffling. Every time you draw a door and can't claim it, you have to shuffle it back into the deck. Every time you refill your hand after resolving a nightmare, if you draw any doors or nightmares during that draw up, you have to shuffle them back into the deck. It feels like you are constantly shuffling the deck. And these are not small cards. It's probably fine for a big person with big hands, but I'm a small person and I find shuffling Onirim a bit awkward, if not outright uncomfortable. I hate to think of trying to shuffle those big cards over and over with arthritis or a similar condition. Now, is there too much shuffling in Onirim? An old friend once told me that the true purpose of solitaire games is to waste time. From that point of view, the constant shuffling is a feature, not a bug. But if you're like me and prefer less shuffling for physical reasons, or even just find it tedious, there's an app for that. Asmodee Digital has created an Onirim app for both Android and iOS. The app is lovely, an excellent implementation of the game, and makes it easy to play Onirim in the waiting room before an appointment, in line at the store, waiting for your code to compile, anytime you're stuck with a few minutes to fill. You can even add a couple of expansions to the app for a nominal cost. And best of all, the app does all of the shuffling for you. Although I also love tense, challenging solitaire games, the ones I play over and over are lighter games that let me unwind and do something a bit more engaging than watching TV. As relaxing solitaire games go, Onirim is one of the best. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not escaping from nightmares through colored doors, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hello, it's Lindsay here. And this episode, I'm talking about The Bloody Inn, a two-to-five player hand management game. It's designed by Nicholas Robert, with artwork by Louis Francisco and Weberson Santiago. It was originally published by Pearl Games and plays in around 30 to 60 minutes. Bloody Inn was released in 2015, and I first found out about it through Radar Runs Through. I love the theme and I enjoy card games, so it looked like a surefire winner to me. I believe that it received quite a bit of hype as it was sold out for some time and was selling for silly prices in corners of the internet. When it got another print run, I snapped it up, and initially I wasn't blown away. I still can't place why, as it wasn't radically different from what I was expecting, but something just took a little while to click for me. But I'm always quite determined to persist with games, and I'm glad I have repeated plays, because eventually it did click into place, and then I found it to be quite delightful. Well, as delightful as a game about the senseless murder can be. The theme is macabre for sure, I've never felt like it was supposed to take itself too seriously. It's supposed to be a little odd and I think the abstract artwork in the game really reflects that. But it's odd yet digestible and easy as hell to learn and play, just not so easy to win. In the Bloody Inn you're playing as the owners of an inn, which is the central board, who are killing and robbing their guests who come in the form of decks of cuts. Each round more guests come to the hotel and are placed in rooms and each player has two actions. You can use these to pick up guests or peasants, hire them as accomplices, use them as annexes or kill them outright. Some cards have a cost and you can use the cards in your hand to hire, kill or bury. When used as annexes they come with a special ability or bonus. You must bury any corpses under an annex and any time the law cards show up at your hotel you must ensure you have no unburied corpses as there'll be a costly penalty, namely losing money and points. When corpses are buried you gain the amount of francs printed on the card and take the corresponding frank tokens. You can also take turns to launder your franks, which means exchanging points on the score tracker for the frank tokens, and the winner is the player with the most money. 
One of the things I enjoy about the game is how rapid the rounds are, especially in a two-player game, and how your decisions need to be made quickly, which is evocative of how you go about covering up an impromptu murder in real life. Not that I've thought about it. The fact that you only have two actions amps up the difficulty factor, and I think this is possibly why I struggled at first, because I wasn't getting beyond that first layer. I was more concerned about disposing the police and burying the bodies with a sole focus on laundering money as soon as possible. But it's really about who you are hiring and their abilities. Now I've played a lot over the past couple of years, I can see why it's so important. If you make these choices carefully, you save so much faff. The accomplices that give you abilities such as paying one less to bury or build or draw an extra card from the peasant deck is just so helpful in getting more out of your two actions rather than repeatedly spending and doing the same thing and getting frustrated the little progress is made. Of course, the gaining and laundering of money is the crux of the game. And again, it's the abilities of the characters that can assist you and give you marvellous end of game bonuses. I love the prints and the green cards because they maximise your income. They're like the rich folk. The problem though, not in a negative sense, is that you never know who's going to be entering the inn and when the police will arrive, so you can't really have a long-term strategy, which makes for those nail-biting moments. It's also a good idea to be cautious as you don't know who's going to show up, but not so cautious that you're not gaining anything. And I think the Bloody Inn is rather thematic in that respect. I was told through a friend on Instagram that the theme is based on a true story, which I didn't know about, and usually I'm pretty clued up on the creepy, weird and horrible. L'Auberge Rouge, or the Red Inn Affair as it's known, sorry I'm not going to attempt a French accent here. It was an incident in the 1800s where the proprietors of the Red Inn in Ardèche, France, killed and ate their guests. There are several books and a couple of films based on the story for anyone who's interested and the inn is actually a tourist attraction today, so I thought it was pretty fascinating. The solo option is also there, and I played it several times in preparation for a playthrough video. It wasn't bad, but it wasn't the best solo game either. For me personally, I think it's much more fun to play with others with this one. It lacks something other than the obvious as a solo game, but because you're not playing an AI and it's simply repeated turns until you win, or in this case, just not lose, it feels a tad on the lonely, repetitive side with not much to aim toward. The regular game has a moderate level of interaction, I find, because though for the most part you're doing your own thing, you can use each other's annexes and gain from other players. Again, simple yet thematic and gives you that little bit of interaction which is much needed sometimes. Lastly, I enjoy the balance of scoring points and laundering money, as you have to choose your moments carefully and maximise your earnings before the game comes to a close. So I think this is why I come to appreciate the bloody in more over time. As the game unravels, you discover there's much more to it, and yet despite those lovely layers, it's actually straightforward to pick up and play. I was very excited to hear of an expansion which is due to release in Essen this year, I believe. The title is Carnival, and there's not much more on it at all, but it looks to be sideshow-type characters that are coming along to change things up in some way we're yet to discover. I'll finish by saying if you think the theme is too dark, please don't worry. It's unsettling and unpleasant, and the real-life story is certainly grim, but it's really not heavy on that side of things. There's no detail, no splatter, it's more suggestive than it is horrific. So unless you're a horror fan and you want to elaborate on what your characters are up to, you can really leave that side of things at the door and just get on with a very decent card game. If you want to see and hear more from me, you can visit my Instagram and YouTube channel, ShinyHaveMeeples, or visit my blog, www.shinyhaveMeeplesblog.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter, capital S, capital H, Meeples. Bye for now. You've been listening to The 5 By, the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 By Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 Games. Join our BGG Guild, number 2810. 
listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at the 5 by thanks for listening. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.